Welcome to the Sunday School lesson from Jolton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills, and I'm glad that we can have this time together. We are continuing our lessons from the book of Romans, and these come from the Nazarene Adult Quarterly. This is the spring quarter of 2021, and today is the lesson from April 4th, which is entitled, Alive in Christ. We are looking at Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Our theme for today's lesson, we are baptized into Christ's death and resurrection. This provides victory over sin and spiritual death. The key verse, the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Romans 6, verses 10 and 11. But before we get into the lesson, let's begin with a word of prayer. I want us to pray together Paul's prayer for the Philippians, found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Goldie Hawn was a, a movie actress from several years back, but she starred with Kurt Russell in a movie titled Overboard, and you may have seen this movie. Goldie Hawn's character is an extremely rich, extremely spoiled woman, and she hires Kurt Russell to do work on her yacht. She ends up kicking him off the yacht, refusing to pay him. And then she falls overboard, hits her head, develops amnesia. Well, Kurt Russell finds her and decides he's going to get his revenge. He convinces her that she is his wife and the mother to his three very rambunctious, mischievous boys. She goes home with him to cook and clean and take care of this family. But then, of course, they fall in love. And Goldie Hawn's character transforms from extremely spoiled, extremely selfish, uh, to, to someone who genuinely loves other people. So she falls overboard, and she dies, in a sense, and is resurrected as a new person. In today's lesson, Paul is describing how we might have a similar experience, that we can be baptized into Christ. We can die to our old self and become a new person in Christ. In Romans chapter 6, Paul begins dealing with an essential question. What role does sin play in the life of a believer? Within the church, we've typically seen two opposite views. Some denominations stress that Christians are always sinning. Other denominations say that Christians never sin. And there can be dangers in both of these extremes. Those who say we always sin, they can end up excusing sin and allowing believers to just continue living as if they were not Christians. Those who say we never sin, they can end up whitewashing sin, refusing to recognize it or to call it sin, but rationalizing it as something else. Now, as Nazarenes, we stress sanctification. The idea that we can be made perfect in Christ. And so, sin in the life of a sanctified believer 
becomes an even bigger issue for us. And often it becomes the elephant in the room, so to speak. That large issue that's there, but no one really wants to acknowledge, no one wants to talk about. Our doctrine can often keep us from talking openly or honestly about sin and the believer. Well, we trace a lot of our understanding of sanctification and sin back to John Wesley and his teachings. But we need to understand Wesley's position on sin and the sanctified life. Wesley wrote, Sinless perfection is a phrase I never use. Instead, he was careful to use the term Christian perfection, a perfection which is fitting for a redeemed person, but a person who is still flawed, a person who is still frail with their human uh, capabilities. So, His perfection was a perfection of heart, a perfect love by which we love God with our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, a love in which our intention is always good. Now, because of human frailty, we may give in to temptation. We may make mistakes. We may have moments of weakness. Wesley never insisted that sanctified Christians are sinless. Wesley, though, divided sins into two general categories. There was what he called sin properly so-called, which was the willful transgression of the known law of God. Then he had what he called sins improperly so-called. These were involuntary transgressions of the law, either known or unknown. For example, a sin of ignorance, where you sin without realizing you were committing a sin. Or what he called sins of surprise, where we act on impulse or whim, kind of a spur of the moment, and we do something we really shouldn't have done. It's conscious, but it's not really premeditated. And also what he calls sins of disobedience, which was giving in to a sudden assault of the enemy, a temptation. You know, all of us retain those human appetites, human weaknesses. As humans, we like to seek pleasure, and avoid pain, and this can create problems for us at times. Now, are these things sins? In one sense, yes, because they're a falling short of what God truly intends for us, but in another sense, they're not. They're not really intentional acts of rebellion or or hostility toward God. And so Wesley saw these as being covered through Christ's blood, These were not sins that would break the relationship with God. And so really, it's helpful for us to see how Wesley views sin as a perverted relationship. It was the act that uh, willfully defies God. It's choosing to rebel. And he really believed it was impossible for a believer to commit this type of sin and still remain a believer because it would sever our relationship with God. And so Wesley would not call some of the things that we might call sins. He might not call them sins, but he still insisted that we should own them, that we should own up to these failures. We depend upon the blood of Christ to atone for them, but we still need to pray for our trespasses. These are things that we can and should fight against. So, as Nazarenes, what we see is there's no room for habitual rebellious sin in the life of a believer, saved or sanctified. 
There is no room for this perversion of our relationship with God. Now, if you're in open rebellion against God, you have not been truly saved. And so, it doesn't really matter whether you've been to the altar or not, but what is your relationship? However, as Christians, we are going to need to live a repentant life, recognizing that there are going to be things that crop up in our lives that we need to be repentant of and that we need to do our best to allow God to change within us. Now, Paul spends the first five chapters of Romans describing how God justifies sinners. He writes things like salvation is a gift of God. Salvation is the result of Christ's work on the cross. Salvation is obtained by faith and only by faith. It's not obtained by any effort on our part. The Jewish people didn't obtain salvation through keeping the Mosaic law. The Gentiles don't obtain salvation through their own efforts as well. It's interesting, Philip Yancey, who's one of my favorite writers, but he describes how in England there was a a conference on comparative religions that was being held. And the ones who were attending the conference were debating, was there one specific belief that Christians held that was not or could not be found in any other religion? And so they began to bring up things common to the Christian faith, like resurrection, uh, the incarnation of Christ. But there are other religions that have these elements in them. Well, C.S. Lewis happened to be walking by, and when he found out what they were talking about, that they were just trying to decide if Christianity was making one unique contribution to the world's religions, his answer was, oh, that's easy. The contribution of Christianity is grace. Grace is that essential characteristic of Christianity, separating us from the other world religions. This understanding that God approaches us in grace. God is the instigator. God is seeking us out. And so we come to God only because He draws us to Himself. Philip Yancey writes, Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. But if we're honest, many of us feel like, well, you can take this idea of grace too far. And Yancey describes this as, an inbuilt resistance to grace. And this is exactly what Paul is facing as he begins chapter 6 of Romans. Paul's critics are speaking out, and Paul has to answer them. The question they have, or the question Paul raises is, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Now, this is a question that Paul's critics were giving to him. Now, First of all, these critics were mainly his fellow Jews. They were the ones who led the offensive against Paul most of the time. To many of them, the idea that God would let a sinner off the hook, it seemed to go against all they knew of God's justice. Proverbs 17, 15, He who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Exodus 23, 7, God says, I will not acquit the wicked. And so Paul comes and is preaching a gospel of grace where through Christ, God is forgiving and justifying the wicked person. Now, they challenge Paul. They say, if what you are saying about God is true, then 
doesn't my sin actually result in the glorification of God? The more I sin, the more God forgives, the greater the chance for God to demonstrate His grace. Now, you get the idea that they are bringing this up to show how ridiculous it can be. They are saying more or less, this couldn't be true, Paul. If you promote this kind of grace, then every devout Jew will turn away from God. The Jewish critics of Paul, they knew human nature. You know, we often hear the quotation, it's better to ask forgiveness than to ask permission. And they knew that many people, if you told them you're not going to be punished for this, they would go ahead and do it. You know, Philip Yancey describes the situation as this, why strive to be just as God wants me to be when God accepts me just as I am? Now, basically, Paul's critics were accusing him of what the church would later label as antinomianism. This is a term that means against law. It's the teaching that the law has no value, that obedience is not important, how we live doesn't matter. Actually, that there are no moral laws that God holds us accountable for. And the church has battled this heresy throughout its lifetime. It's cropped up in one form or another. And we find antimonianism, we find it alive and well in the modern church. We can find many excuses for saying that our sin, our disobedience, is not that big a deal. It doesn't really matter. Now, this may range from classic antinomialism, antinomianism, the idea, well, I'm forgiven anyway, so why not do it? Or we may bring up other excuses. You know, you may find the man who says, well, it's no big deal for me to look at pornography because if I'm doing this, then I'm not cheating on my wife. I'm not running around with prostitutes. You might find those who say, well, this sin can't be too bad because everybody is doing it. Or a lot of times you'll hear people talk about their sins and they'll bring up the idea, well, surely God has bigger things to deal with than my little sin. And so we find lots of ways to excuse our sin, to say, "Ah, yes, I sin, but that doesn't make me a sinner. It's similar to the position that many Americans took during Prohibition. This was back in the early 1900s when alcohol was made illegal. However, the law never was effective because many honest citizens decided to ignore it. They kept on drinking, they kept on using alcohol, and they never thought of themselves as criminals. Yes, technically they were breaking the law, but they never really considered themselves to be guilty. Now, when Paul is asked this question, are we to just continue sinning so that grace may abound? His answer is, by no means. He's very definite here. Paul says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now, baptism was of extreme importance to the early church. We see this from the apostles. When Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch, and leads him to the truth. 
the next thing they do is arrange for the eunuch to be baptized. When Paul and Silas have their night in the Philippine jail, and the jailer and his whole family is converted because of the earthquake that God sends, after conversion, the next step is Paul baptizes them. And so baptism was seen as an important part of the, uh, the life of the Christian. It was seen as what was called a sacramentum. Now, Caesar was the head of the Roman government. He was the man at the very top. And in fact, they often insisted that Caesar was actually divine, that he was a god. When you became a Roman soldier, Caesar required that you make a public vow of faithfulness, that you take an oath, and this oath was called a sacramentum, but it was a declaration of your loyalty to Caesar and to the Roman Empire. Christians often saw baptism as the same type of sacramentum. It was a public declaration of their faith in Christ, of their loyalty to Christ. It was taken in front of witnesses. And so baptism was a vow of faithful service to Christ, to His kingdom. And it wasn't just a meaningless ritual. Baptism had serious ramifications for the Gentiles. Basically, it, it meant a lot of times the cutting of ties with much of your family, with much of your community. If you were uh, a Gentile Christian, once you were baptized, you could not participate in many aspects of community life because most times these involved pagan sacrifices. It involved eating meat that was sacrificed to a pagan god. You had to refuse to worship Caesar as God, which could lead the government to branding you a traitor, a rebel. And so baptism was a serious step. It wasn't taken lightly. It was the dramatic ending of an old life and the beginning of a new one. Paul tells them, do you not realize what is happening when you are baptized? You are actually participating in the death and resurrection of Christ. You are being baptized into his death, buried with him, and then you are being raised to a new life through his resurrection. The old self, the you that went under the water, is no more. When you come up out of that water, you come up as part of Christ's resurrection, as a new creature in Christ. In fact, many times early Christians would actually take a new name when they were baptized to symbolize how complete this break was with their old life. And so Paul uses baptism to symbolize for Christians our participation as believers in Christ's death and resurrection. He talks about us being united with Christ. And this is a word that's used to describe how you might take a cutting from one plant and graft it onto the root of another. For example, you might take a cutting from one type of fruit tree and graft it onto the trunk, the branch of another. And so we are being united with Christ. We are being grafted on to the life of Christ. Paul talks about how our old self is crucified. The body of sin is killed off. We are made alive to God. And Paul doesn't mince any words. In Galatians chapter 5, Colossians chapter 3, he contrasts their old way of life where they were committing horrible sins 
And then he contrasts that with their new life, the life in the Spirit. And he makes it plain that there's, there's a dramatic difference between the way you used to live and the way that you should be living now. Now, as Paul seeks to explain our transformed lives, what he says is, when we recognize how our baptized, how we are baptized into Jesus' death and resurrection, this is going to do two things for us. First, it's going to change our worldview. It's going to change how we perceive the world, how we actually perceive reality around us. We know that worldview is important. It shapes our actions because our worldview determines what we see as possible and impossible, what we see as normal or abnormal. It, it shapes our actions by defining what we see literally as unthinkable. An example of this, for many years, experts felt that it was impossible for humans to run a mile in less than four minutes. They felt like this barrier was just a physiological impossibility. In the 1940s, they began to get close, and the record was actually pushed to four minutes and one second. But it stood right there for nine years because most people believed it would be impossible to get through that four-minute mark. However, in 1954, Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. He ran a mile in three minutes, 59 seconds. What's incredible, though, is once people saw that this wasn't impossible, that it could be done, it was only 46 days later that John Landy broke his record. He ran a mile in 3 minutes and 58 seconds. And a year later, there were three runners in the very same race who broke that 4-minute mile barrier. And over the last 50 years, there have been over a 1,000 runners who have ran a mile in less than four minutes. And so what happens is our worldview shapes what we see as possible. And therefore, it shapes our behavior. It shapes what we do. Now, our worldview is changed in two transformational ways when we realize that we are baptized with Christ into His death and resurrection. First of all, how we view sin is transformed. We see sin in a new light, not as a legal status. We don't see sin anymore as behavior, behaviors that can be classified as major sins, as minor sins. Instead, we begin to see sin as a distortion of relationship, a twisting of the relationship that we have with our Creator. Now, we also see that our view of grace is transformed. We see grace in a new light, not just as simply undeserved favor, not as just a decision by God to not hold us responsible, as a cheap grace. You know, we see grace as cheap on God's part. We feel like, well, God just redefines our legal standing he makes the decision not to hold us responsible. It's like a president who signs a pardon for a convicted criminal. And because we see it as something cheap on God's part, it's something that we take as cheap on our part, something that's easily given, 
It's not highly valued, something we can easily abuse. However, when our view of grace is transformed, we begin to see grace as God himself extending himself into our lives. God is giving up him, his own son for us, giving up his most precious possession so that he might become part of our lives. The cost for God are far greater than any value he obtains from us. We feel like it really costs God nothing. It's similar to a president signing a pardon when he uh, leaves office. You know, it doesn't affect the president. He just signs a piece of paper. It cost him nothing. But it's more like the situation that Pilate faced when he had to decide, should he pardon Barabbas or Jesus? In this situation, pardoning one meant the automatic death of the other. Now, with Pilate, this wasn't really a big deal because Pilate couldn't care less about either Barabbas or Jesus. He didn't really care who was pardoned and who was condemned. But think about what this meant for God. For God to pardon us meant the condemnation of His own Son. And so He chose to pardon us even though it meant that He condemned what was most precious to Himself. So, you know, we, we see this as cheap grace, as if it cost God nothing. But that's not the situation at all. So, our worldview is transformed. How we see sin, how we see grace, and as a result, it becomes unthinkable for us to imagine an ongoing relationship with God while we continue to sin. It becomes unthinkable for us to to promote the idea that my sin exalts God's grace. It becomes unthinkable for me to respond to such an incredible love with such incredible selfishness on my part. We begin to actually live out the truth of 1 John 4.19. We love Him because He first loved us. John was one of the twelve disciples of Jesus, but he has a unique description. In Scripture, he's identified as the disciple that Jesus loved. Brennan Manning writes about John that if you ask John to identify himself, if you said, John, who are you? How do you see yourself? John wouldn't reply, well, I'm a disciple, or I'm an apostle, or I'm an evangelist. Not even, I'm the author of a gospel. But rather, John would respond, I am the disciple Jesus loved. When we recognize ourselves as the disciple that Jesus loves, this becomes our new identity. We love Him because He first loved us. Our primary identity becomes, I am the disciple that Jesus loved. And then a transformation happens within us. It's interesting, sociologists have a theory called the looking glass self. And this is the idea that we become what the most important person in our life thinks that we are. And so a lot of times this may be a parent, a father, a mother. We become the self that we see reflected in their view of us. So if they view us as, as a screw-up, as a failure, we often begin seeing ourselves as the same thing. If, however, they view us as something good, something wholesome, we can see ourselves in the same light. Now, there are a lot of problems with this. It, it's not totally true, but 
there is truth to that. And when we see ourselves in light of how God sees us, when we see ourselves as the disciple that Jesus loved, it makes a difference in how we respond to that love. Now, not only does Paul's explanation of our transformed lives, that we are baptized into the life and death of Jesus, not only does this change our worldview, but it changes our behavior as well. In chapters 1 through 5, Paul is discussing doctrine and theory. Paul is giving a lot of explanations. In chapter 6, Paul gives the very first command from Romans. And he issues several very clear commands at the end of this chapter. Paul says, Count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God. Do not let sin reign. Do not obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself as an instrument of wickedness. Don't allow sin to be your master. Offer yourselves to God. Several years ago, Nike mounted an advertising campaign using the slogan, Just Do It. And that sounds a lot like what Paul is commanding us here. Paul doesn't make it complicated. He doesn't go into details. He simply says, don't let sin reign in your bodies. Bob Newhart was a comedian from the 70s and the 80s, but he had a skit where he played a psychiatrist. And a patient comes to him with a problem. She has this crippling fear that someone is going to bury her alive in a box. And so she's afraid to go into any small spaces, tunnels, elevators, even small rooms. And this is making her life miserable. And so she explains the situation to Bob Newhart, who's her psychiatrist. And then she sets back to wait for what he has to tell her. And she expects, you know, the common psychological things that, that psychiatrists say in these situations. But instead, he gives her a very simple piece of advice. Two words. He says, stop it. And she can't believe what he's saying. But he's, he keeps it very simple. In fact, he says, it's funny, I say two simple words, and I cannot tell you the amount of people who say exactly the same thing you are saying. You know this is not Yiddish, Catherine. This is English. Just stop it. And she can't believe the advice that he's giving her. But his point is, there comes a point where we just have to stop it, to stop doing those things that we are doing. Now, Paul is telling the Romans something very similar here. Just stop it. Before we are Christians, before we are baptized into Christ's death and resurrection, it really would do us no good to tell us this. Before Christ's death, we were powerless over sin. We were enslaved. But now, because of what Christ has done for us, because of what He did on the cross, there's been a shift in the entire universe. There is a new reality in place. Paul writes, For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul is describing a mystery here. 
that when Christ died on the cross, somehow we were present with Him. Our old selves died when Christ died. That old life of being dead in our trespasses and sins, that has gone. The old nature is dead. When Christ was resurrected, we rose with Him to begin a new life, a life lived to God. And it's hard for us to grasp this. Paul talks about the mystery of Christ in you. But this, when Paul talks about being united with Christ, as we said earlier, the word united carries with it the idea of, of taking a cutting from one tree and grafting it onto the rootstock of another. You know, earlier Paul had uh, contrasted Jesus with Adam. In Adam, the original man, everyone died because Adam sinned. Adam died, and through Adam, all of us died. Somehow, every person who's ever existed was present with Adam in that original sin. Now, Paul is saying something very similar here, something very similar uh, in, in this passage. Just as we were present with, with Adam in the original sin, somehow we are also present with Christ in His death and resurrection. And so we were united with Adam. As a result, we took part in Adam's sin and we were condemned to death. Now we are also united with Christ. We are grafted onto a new rootstock, a new root and branch system. God Himself is the one who establishes this union. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 says, But by God's doing you are in Christ Jesus. And we can have problems understanding this because it's hard for us to see from God's perspective. We are so limited by time and by thinking of an event as taking place within that time. And so we have the idea that uh, humans were in existence for a couple of thousand years and then Christ came and then that was several thousand years ago and now we're here today. But in God's view, all of this is occurring simultaneously. It's all happening at the same time. Christ's death is timeless. It applied to those who lived before Christ came to this earth. It applies to all of those who've lived after Christ came to this earth. And Paul really likes this phrase, in Christ. He uses it 73 times in his writings. But to Paul, this is a stupendous reality that we can be in Christ. And there's several verses, you know, Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.9 that in Christ we are given grace. He gave us grace in Christ Jesus before the ages began. We are told that we were chosen by God. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In Christ we have redemption through His blood. In Christ, we are justified before God. In Christ, we have become a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is past, the new has come. Galatians 3.26, In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. In Christ, we have been seated in the heavenly places. Ephesians 2.6, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. In 2 Corinthians we are promised that in Christ, all of the promises for God are yes for us. 
And so it goes on and on about all of the riches of the reality of being in Christ, in Christ. So how do we get to this state of being in Christ? Well, at the unconscious level, the decisive level, this is God's work and God alone. You know, we, we quoted 1 Corinthians 6.30. It's from God are you in Christ Jesus. But at the conscious level of our own action, it's through faith. Ephesians 3.17, Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. The life we live, we live in union with Christ's death in life. And we live it by faith in the Son of God. We are united with His death and resurrection through faith. And so union with Christ is accomplished by faith. But we have to remember this word faith is much more robust than simply something that we agree to with our minds. It's not our rational self agreeing that this is true. To believe is to stake everything on an action and to act as if it's true. Faith and obedience always go together. You know, James tells us something that we can find very shocking. He tells us even the demons believe in God and they shudder, but they certainly don't have faith in God that Paul is talking about here. Many 12-step programs that help people break free from addiction to alcohol, to drugs, they use a slogan, fake it till you make it. The idea is when an addict feels overwhelmed, when they feel like the rehab process is useless, there's no way that they can make this work, they are told this slogan, fake it till you make it. And the idea is no matter what you feel like, even if you feel like the biggest fake there is, keep working the program. Keep acting as if it's working. And then your, your faith, your inside, will eventually catch up with your outside. And Paul is telling us something similar here. He is telling us Jesus has instituted a new reality in your life. And you need to take hold of this reality by faith. You need to act as if it is true because it is a new reality. No matter what you may be feeling, this is real. And we access it by faith. We can make this real in our life. We can live a totally new type of life. Paul sums up this whole chapter by saying, Sin shall no longer be your master. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, Paul seems to be contradicting himself because he wrote earlier, We are those who have died to sin. Our old self was crucified with him, with Christ. But then he goes on to write things like, Do not let sin reign. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin. And so it seems that Paul is putting a contradiction here. If our old self, the one that was dominated by sin, if it's been crucified, why do I still need to resist sin? How am I still drawn to sin? Now, Paul very definitely says your old nature has been crucified. So he seems to be saying your old nature is crucified, but make sure that you keep killing it. Paul resent, presents the reality of what we are in Christ as something that is already, but not yet. And I like the way John Piper explains this. He writes, the Christian life is an already and a not yet experience. 
What happened to Christ Jesus, finally and unchangeably, is applied to us, not all at once. Even though it was done completely, it's applied to us progressively, and it will be applied to us fully in the age to come. We are already fully forgiven and acquitted and declared righteous, and we are already delivered from the slavery to sin, and we are already able by faith to grow more and more triumphant, but we are not yet perfected in our daily earthly experience. We must fight the fight of faith and become in experience by faith what we've already been made in our union with Christ. Paul sums this up in Philippians 3.12, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So we see that this has already been done in the death of Christ. We were baptized into his death and resurrection, and sin has been slain in our lives. Yet, every day, we have to keep continuing to make the choice of offering ourselves not as slaves to sin, but as slaves to righteousness. And I hope that's your aim, that that's your goal, to allow the gospel of Christ to really take its root in you during this next week. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day, for these words that you've spoken to us this morning, for this gospel that Paul explains, and the great gift of how we are made new creatures, set free in you. Our old self is crucified, it's dead. We are raised to new life in Christ. We don't have to keep on sinning. We don't have to keep enslaved to our old way of life. Instead, we can be joined to you. We give you praise and glory in your name. Amen.